Hi there, my name is Rob Waller and welcome to the July Mine and Soul podcast. In this episode you can listen to part of a sermon where Will van der Hart addresses the level of stress found in his church. He reviews the space services that they've been trying out recently and looks at Jesus' times of solitude as an example. Then Will interviews me about obsessional thinking and especially about how Christians can get trapped when thinking about sin and hell. I hope you enjoy it. to ask you a serious question because this is this if you're a visitor this is a space service so this is supposed to be about creating space um for people i want to i want to know how how do you think we're doing as a church in creating space for you guys how do you think we're doing any any offerings you think we're good at creating space and i think we're not very good at creating space anyone ambiguous about the fact that we create space Someone said to me, I said tonight, this is a space service. It wasn't intentionally like meant to be completely empty. Um, (laughs) There's a lot of space, isn't there? There's an awful lot of space. But we've been trying to to create space. um, And I wondered, I just, you know, this is the last space service in this series of space services. So I wanted to know, how do you think we're doing at creating space? Don't you think churches are terrible at getting appraisal? When have you ever had a questionnaire to ask how you think you're getting on? You know, we're awful, aren't we? Leadership team kind of stands up and right now we're going to do this. And then you all go, oh, right, okay, well, I thought we might do that. And um, oh, no, 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 we're not doing that. So I want to know, you know, what do you really think? You know, does anyone ever ask you to email in with your opinions? Because they should. And um, I was wondering about this whole thing of the space services. And, you know, what I thought was, you know, it's so funny how quickly you can forget what life was like before you were leading a church. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> Funny, isn't it? You, you, you know, it's amazing how quickly you forget what life was like when you weren't leading a church. I used to be a school teacher. I'd be in my classroom at 8 a.m. I'd leave it at 5 p.m. Then I might assume some boarding house duties until midnight or head over for a PCC, AGM, finance planning, HMI or Ofsted meeting. Then again, I might just teach extracurricular sport, take fixtures, out-of-bound trips or just a detention. And if I wasn't busy, I might just mark 70 books, examine 300 papers, and write 473 reports. But then again, sometimes things are just a bit too slack, aren't they? And I'd go off to my wonderful church to assume my duties on the security team, lead an alpha group, go to the AGM, do the PCC, do the pregnancy training, help out with the youth event, do the away day, receive the Holy Spirit, listen to the talk, take on a new initiative, initiative number 277, meet my home group, encourage my vicar, smile at the fit girl, and then head off home to my bed, to my turnaround place. And then I might just lie there, feeling really bad. After all, there are homeless people in my town. They'd be cold that night. And weren't there starving children in Africa who'd fall asleep hungry? And then there was the issue of my commitment. Was I the consumer Christian that my vicar had railed against? The one who just came along on Sundays to receive? The one who didn't put his faith into actions? Welcome to your world. You think we're creating space for you? I'm just going to read this little passage tonight from Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 5, if you've got a Bible, you can follow it. I haven't gone to the technological joys of putting it up on the screen for you. I thought you might just like to relax and listen to it rather than being visually bombarded by it. 
Luke chapter 5. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered in leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face into the ground and begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. And this is the really important bit for tonight. Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. I'll just read that bit again. Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. In fact, you know this, that there's actually nine other places in the Gospels where it directly states that Jesus often withdrew. You know, there's far more mentions of withdrawal in Jesus' ministry than there are of many other notable things. He's the Son of God, and he's wandering around the earth, and he's healing the sick, he's making the blind see, he's casting out demons, and you know, he's even raising people from the dead. And the writers of the New Testament chose to tell us on nine different occasions that Jesus withdrew. Can you imagine them making up their decisions, the writers of the New Testament, whilst they're wondering what they should include in their different books? Hmm, he seems to be walking away again. Do you think that's important? Well, hmm, I'm not sure. I mean, compared to that woman that he's just raised from the dead, I don't really know. He's walking away again. Do you think I should write that down? I mean, you know, he has just healed those 400 people. Yeah, I reckon you should write that down. But what about detail on the 400 people that he's just healed? No, no, write down that he walked away, you know, and took a breather. Ooh, that looks really important. He's walking away again. It's really odd. It's really random. How many stories are there in the Bible about Jesus healing people? Well, a lot, but actually not that many. We know so many times the disciples uh, you know, were with Jesus, and Jesus was healing many people, and the writers of the New Testament put, and Jesus healed many people that day. What? Well, I want to know. I want to know who they were, and I want to know what was wrong with them, and I want to know how he healed them, and I want to know what happened to them, and how they felt afterwards. I don't want to know that he just, like, you know, went for a little walk, had a little rest. It's not that interesting. But it's really important. Did you, did you go to the five service tonight? Did you hear Pete's story about healing? Pete's friend is at another church, and the woman there... Um, She was called Rihanna. Thank you. Thank you. Rihanna. And she had a terrible form of cancer. And and, and basically she was praying and she was wondering about what the Lord wanted her to do. And she felt the Lord was asking her to buy a new Bible, write James B. in the front cover of the Bible, wrap the Bible up and put it in her handbag. And she went to see her consultant two weeks later, or three, three weeks later, 
And her consultant, with another consultant there, said, well, I don't know what to say to you, but your cancer has completely disappeared. And she said, well, actually, I think that's because I'm, I've been praying that the Lord would heal me of cancer. And the other doctor, Dr. Patel, who was with her, was a Christian as well. And he agreed that the Lord had healed her. And then the, then the other doctor happened to be called James, James B. And he said, well, I think this is amazing. Because three weeks ago, someone else who came to see me was miraculously healed. And I prayed that if God was really real, that I'd see someone else be healed. And if they were healed, I would believe in him. And she reached into her handbag and said, huh, I think this might be for you. And gave him a Bible. And he opened it. And inside the front cover, it said, James B. You know, in the New Testament, I wouldn't mind a few stories like that. Thanks very much. It's great, isn't it? For building your faith. Fantastic. And then Jesus did this. And of course, there are lots of stories like that. I mean, like Jairus' daughter, or like the woman with bleeding, or, you know, like uh, the paralyzed man who's lowered down through the roof, or like when Jesus calmed the storm, which we were talking about earlier. I mean, there's loads of stories, and I could tell you about them. But I'd love a few more, you know, just, you know, a few more just to kind of, you know, argh, fantastic. But no, Jesus is walking off against the hills for another breather. Do you know what the writers of the New Testament were really doing? They were stating something that was fundamentally important. It was an absolute feature of Jesus' ministry. It was the absolute quintessential center of Jesus' ministry. It was the kingdom ministry. It was who is Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's what the writers of the New Testament are telling us. Who is he? The messianic secrets that we talk about in theological classes. Who is Jesus? Jesus says to Peter, who am I? Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. The prevalence of the phrase that Jesus withdrew reflects the reality that Jesus was withdrawing on a regular basis. Yes, it's mentioned nine times in the New Testament. But as you said, as you saw there in that passage in Matthew 5, it's, you know, Jesus would often withdraw. He would withdraw on a daily basis or maybe a weekly basis. But you know what he was doing? He was getting space. He was getting space to rest, to recharge, to get refreshed, to have some peace, to have some quiet, and to be with his Father, to be with God. Now, you tell me if you think, as a church, we're presenting a model of Jesus' ministry to you. Are we encouraging you to live and to work like him? If we are, then we're encouraging you to retreat. We're encouraging you to take time out. We're encouraging you to rest and to relax into the presence of God. I really hope, and I've, I've felt this for me, but I hope you felt this too, that just tonight, just Chris and the band just led us in an opportunity, in a time of, of resting and relaxing to God's presence. I felt like my legs weren't aching. I was sitting down. I felt I was enjoying the music. It wasn't too loud. I was just loving the mellow presence of the Lord. And I was just breathing it in. 
One of the most helpful things that my old church leader ever said to me was at the end of a meeting. And, you know, he put a hand firmly on my shoulder and he said to me, Will, during term time, your teaching is your ministry. He laid a hand on my shoulder. He said, Will, during term time, your teaching is your ministry. It's so helpful to me because I, I, I'd separated my world out into my work, my rest, my play, and my church. You see, we've got such an unfortunate platonic view of the world. We've created these horrible concrete boundaries within which certain things are performed. You know, it's classically epitomized by that view that work is for money and it's for me. Rest is time for me. Socializing, it's time for me. And church, well, church, that's time for God. You know, I think we need to invert this model or at least challenge it somewhere along the line. We don't live in this categorized world, especially as Christians. In fact, completely the opposite is true. Your work is also your ministry. Even if it doesn't appear to have a particularly vocational emphasis, your work is also your ministry. Are we telling you that? Because we should be. My father, you know, he was, he was in the cutthroat business empire for about 40 years. And um, in many ways, I think that was a really hard call for him because he would love to have been out doing the sort of things that I have the privilege of doing on a daily basis. But in reality for him, it was 40 years of amazing ministry where he could work as a Christian and influence so many people with the great news of Jesus Christ. My dad used to carry these very posh, leather-bound Gideon Testaments inside uh, his, his, uh, his work jacket. And every opportunity, he would have a business meeting, and then he might just whip out one of these leather Bibles and say, ah, oh, yes, let me just give you something. Let me just give you this. Is it a diary? No, it's a Bible. Whatever your job is, let it be your ministry, a ministry of service or ministry of action. It says it in the Bible, it's not my information. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Whatever you do, whatever you're doing, if you're here tonight and you're an artist or you're a banker or you're unemployed or you're currently working for the council or you're a priest or you know you're a musician whatever you're doing that is your ministry it's a ministry it's not separate from your world with Christ it is part of your world with Christ are you living it like it's your ministry or is it what you do and then you come along to church to do your ministry. You know, we need to let Christ permeate every part of our lives. Work, rest, and play. It may well be then that church for you should be the place where you just turn up and you kick up your feet and you relax in the presence of God. Where he refuels you and he restores you. A place where you can share your burdens, where you can come up to the front with, for prayer. You know, your week in ministry has been exhausting. This is your opportunity to be refreshed and replenished. We need to stand with you 
We need to celebrate your ministry in the week. We need to stand with you through seasons of pain and celebration. Your life is your ministry. If you're coming to church and you're feeling exhausted and going home exhausted for a rest, then something's fundamentally wrong, either with what we're doing or with what you're thinking about what we're doing. Are you feeling free to sit down in worship because you're just too tired to stand up? That's okay. Are you feeling free to come down here at the front and lie on the carpet and pretend to be asleep? That's okay. Are you getting up and having a coffee to wake you up halfway through the service? That's okay. Are you just relaxing in the presence of God and being refreshed and being restored? Are you giving yourself the space to wait on the Spirit for that refreshment? Or are you rushing away to get some rest to have a break from all of the busyness, from all of the pressure. Now, we need to look at our lives holistically, not separate everything into these arbitrary categories. I think the church at the moment here is, it's stressed out. It's redlining. It's really tired. You know, people's marriages and their families and their relationships are stressed and strained. And the sad thing is, I can't help but think that some of this is our fault. to the rest of the message via our website www.mindandsoul.info by looking in the audio and video list under the home menu. You'll also find lots of other helpful multimedia resources here. Now Will interviews me about obsessional thinking. to see you again. Um, Today we're going to have a little chat about obsessional thinking. Um, Now, uh, quite a lot of people in my church have mentioned to me that they struggle with obsessional thinking. And a couple of examples I've had recently, uh, um, I had a young woman who couldn't stop confessing her sins. Uh, She felt no um, sort of relief from confession. She was confessing things that she'd confessed a thousand times before, but she didn't feel forgiven. And she just, every time that she thought or said anything that she thought was mildly, mildly uh, wrong, she would start confessing. So she seemed to be locked into a cycle of confession, um, causing her great distress. Mm. Um, and an- another young woman I met um, kept thinking about uh, doing violent things to people who she loved, so stabbing her husband when she was chopping the vegetables with, with the carving knife in the kitchen and uh, you know poking uh, people who were speaking to her in the eye. Uh, and she didn't want to do these things. She felt terribly distressed by them, mm. uh, yet she sort of felt that she couldn't stop doing them. Mm. And she sort of started developing a few um, rituals that she'd go through, um, uh, sort of tapping and checking and uh, these sort of things. Is this, this a common experience in, in mental health? Yeah. Well, I mean, she's in good company in the church, to be honest. Um, Martin Luther, who was one of the key figures in the Reformation, in, in the 1500s in, in this country, he, he had very similar problems. He was, when he was about to get into the pulpit to preach, he was convinced that he'd walk up into the pulpit, he'd open his mouth, and the first thing to come out of his mouth would be a swear word. Really? Oh and, and, and sometimes what would happen is he'd go up into the pulpit and he'd stand there five minutes in, in, in silence while he, he tried really, really hard 
to get the first word out. And, you know, he was convinced that he'd open his mouth and some awful, rude, four-letter word would come out. And in actual fact, what, what always happened was that he, he, he got up and he started his sermon, you know, dear friends, thank you for coming to church, and, and, and off they were. But he was absolutely convinced, and he used to have these little rituals that he'd go through. He'd either read through a psalm or he would have to confess or something like that. And he, he, he sort of believed that if he did these things, then he wouldn't come out with, with, with a swear word. So he always did them. That's really interesting. We hear a lot about obsessional behavior. I, the word OCD seems to have become a, quite a, a trendy word. I was, I was seeing on TV, David Beckham, they were saying, was OCD, and he uh, made sure all the Coke cans in his fridge were rotated round so the cocoa lined up with the fridge and or they're all symmetrical. Um, and there's quite a lot of quite a lot of sort of pop stars, film personalities who are now claiming that they're OCD. But, but real obsessional thinking and obsessional behaviour is not comfortable, is it? It's not fashionable. No. I think, I think we've got to make a, a distinction between obsessive compulsive disorder, which is extremely distressing, and people who are just quite obsessional. So, for example, I'm fairly obsessional. I'm a doctor. Most doctors are sort of fairly obsessional. You know, I like things to be lined up neatly on my desk, you know, in nice rectangles. Um, we've got a table in front of us that the readers can't see, but I've got the post-it notes laid out on it in a nice sort of rectangular formation. I like nice, neat lists. But at the end of the day, if you came along and messed those up, I wouldn't be too distressed. I wouldn't be thinking that anything particular was going to happen or that any great disaster was going to befall anybody. And I probably wouldn't become particularly anxious. I just prefer them that way. So I suppose one of the questions I'd want to ask David Beckham is, what are the Coke cans doing in his fridge? You know, is, if I went into the fridge and turned one of them round, would he find that just mildly annoying? and not like me and not invite me round again uh, and just go and straighten it round again? Or would he actually be worried that unless I straighten that round, something awful is going to happen? So, so, for example, Martin Luther thought that unless I do this ritual, then I'm going to swear. Um, your, your person who you spoke to with the knife thought, unless I count to ten or say the Our, Our Father or the Hail Mary or something like that, then I will pick up the knife. And... Um, your person who was confessing was probably had some kind of thing. Unless I confess, then I'm going to go to hell or something like that. Sure, quite, quite frightening thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and they are frightening. And, and what's going on in these situations is people are at some level kind of misinterpreting or, or jumping to conclusions with things. Okay, so because they're feeling anxious and because they're feeling worried and they're worried about these things that they think are going to happen, they, they get into anxious ways of thinking. And one of the very first things you said was this lady who feels as though she has to confess everything and thinks that she's going to do something awful. Whereas the reality of it, probably, you would say, and I'm sure this is the advice you give her, is that she's an above-averagely good person. Absolutely. And that she's already confessed these things, and, and first of all, that's enough. She's already confessed Jesus, and that's enough. But she feels that it's not enough and also she thinks she's going to do something awful, whereas in actual fact, she may not be. And in actual fact, we know that Martin Luther, as far as I know, never got into the pulpit and started off his sermon with, with a four-letter word. As far as I know, he always managed to give a perfectly reasonable sermon, maybe after a long delay. But then the key thing is he always did his compulsion. 
And that obsessive compulsive disorder is that you've got this obsession, this worry going on inside you, and it results in some kind of compulsion, either something very physical like washing your hands or checking that the door's locked or checking the brakes on your car or your bicycle, or something internal like saying a prayer or counting to 100 or counting in multiples of two. And you get anxious until you do your compulsion, and then somehow that compulsion removes the feared event. That, that you're worried about and sometimes it's a real link so for example you think right okay I've checked I've checked the um, lock on my house six times I've checked that the gas is turned off six times therefore my house isn't going to catch fire but sometimes it's a completely magical link like um, I've counted to a hundred in steps of two therefore my children aren't going to get bullied in school today and there's something magical about that. There, there isn't logic in that link but it's still an obsession and a compulsion and then the anxiety goes away until the problem comes back again. And that's the problem, is it's self-perpetuating, because it works for a little while, but it never really makes the problem go away. So what we're saying again, I think, is that there's a, a similar way to depression. There's a, a real scale of how this problem's worked out. Mm. You've you mentioned that a lot of people in the church are mildly obsessional. Maybe we're all mildly obsessional about certain things. But um, there's a sort of scale by which people might be affected by obsessional thinking and then some, some of them by obsessional behaviour as well, yep. compulsions and rituals. Uh, and that scale can become actually quite debilitating. Definitely. And I think that's a good way to think about it is if, you know, I mean, if someone checks their house twice when they go out of it just to check it's locked, then that's okay. But if they get to the end of the path ten times and have to keep walking back up the path to check their house locked, that's problematic. If David Beckham checks his fridge once a day to check the Coke cans are okay, that's all right. But if he gets up 10 times a night to check that the Coke cans are still in one place, that's problematic. So if a person is spending, for the sake of argument, let's say more than 15, 30 minutes a day engaged in some kind of ritual or compulsive activity, or if they're really quite limited in what they can do, particularly if they, they've changed over time. So they were able to go out and do things normally, and now they're not able to go out and do things normally, then I would say that probably is obsessive-compulsive disorder rather than just having an obsessional personality. T tell me a bit more about obsessional personality, because, you know, we, you know the, the, obviously... You know, several people would admit that they find themselves, you know, obsessing or ruminating, thinking constantly about certain things. So, what's the difference between being someone who gets strung up about things and constantly thinks about things, and someone who's more obsessional? Yeah, I think, I think the the, the key thing about worrying and ruminating and thinking about things is that we tend to we tend to focus on the positives of it. Okay, so you get advice in life, like, for example, make a list, make a checklist, or um, you get advice in sermons, maybe. Go and do an inventory of what you're currently spending your time doing and see whether or not you could spend some time doing voluntary work or something like that. So, so we're, we're called to examine our lives, and there's benefits in that, in that if we can sit down and examine our life and say, um, right, well, I, that's useful. I need to make some changes here, or I need to make some changes there. That's quite useful. The problem is that what we tend to do is tend to apply that technique to everything. Okay, so, so we start, if, for example, it's, it, it's something fairly specific, like, um, you know, let's look at my money. Am, am I tithing? Okay, we can sit down, we can look at our balance sheet, we can do the maths, it's very clear, it's black and white. The answer is yes or no. But if, if, we're, if we're trying to answer some really 
worrying question, like, for example, if I'm about to change job and move to a different town, and, and I'm worried, you know, when I get to the new town, will anyone like me? Now, because that's in the future, and because it's very hard to measure, if we, if we think too much about that, fundamentally there is no answer to that question. And what we can end up is we can getting ourselves into stews of overthinking, overanalyzing, and at the end of the day, we just have to kind of move town and see how it goes. Um, and we've got all these positive beliefs about worry. Worry is a good idea. Um, last time I thought about something, I came up with a really key thing that I wouldn't have thought about if I hadn't spent all that time thinking. We've got all these positive stories and anecdotes that we tell us about worry and rumination and checking and things like that. What we don't tend to remember is the negative effects, i.e., that took a whole bunch of time. As a result of that, I it took me half an hour to leave home. Um, as a result of all this worrying, I've always got this background burning, anxious, slightly tense, not in my stomach kind of feeling. So, so, so I think people were, were built in as humans to be obsessional and thinkers because we've been told it's a good idea. Whereas in actual fact, it's probably not a good idea in every circumstance. And I'm not saying that we ought to be so laid back that we're horizontal, but it, we just need to be selective about what we worry about. And the things that we can't worry about or worry is not productive in, we actually just need to be making decisions and doing things and looking at behaviours rather than sort of internal, internal worries. It's really interesting, um, Rob, to hear you say that. As a church leader, I think uh, I, I see an awful lot of obsessional thinking, particularly related to the Christian faith. Um, uh, the young woman I was speaking to who felt the need to confess was very aware of herself as a sinner who uh, she, th she, she believed was saved by grace. And her obsession was uh, really kind of constantly analyzing herself and, and viewing herself as a sinner, analyzing every single situation that she was in. Mm. Um, Jesus' mm. teaching, I think, is particularly problematic uh, when he says to the adulterous people um, you know, uh, who are thinking about adultery, uh, you, the sinner for adultery that you've considered in your mind is as if uh, you'd actually done it in practice. Um, this is a particularly difficult teaching because people assume that some of the subconscious streams of, th of thought that they have, um, unpleasant um, but common subconscious streams of thinking, uh, are perceived as being actual thoughts which they've been entertaining to the point where they've become a sin. I was trying to explain to this uh, young woman that actually... Um, that, that Jesus was talking about people who were lusting after another woman and entertaining and, if you like, enjoying uh, the fantasy of having uh, this extramarital relationship. The reality that her thoughts are just subconscious spikes yeah. uh, that yeah. are teaching her what she doesn't want to do, and therefore they aren't in themselves sins. Yes. Also point to Jesus uh, in his temptations. Jesus was tempted in every way. Therefore, Jesus was also tempted uh, in terms of thought about what yeah. he might choose. Now, we know that Jesus was without, out, with, was without sin. Mm. Therefore, Jesus had thoughts which must have been unsavory, uh, but chose not to engage mm. in them. Mm. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been uh, temptations. So he, it's possible to have um, temptations or thoughts which um, might uh, give you the option of doing something that's wrong, but choose to yep. rebuff them and yet be completely without sin in that instance. I, I think that's a really good test, actually, as to whether this is obsessive-compulsive disorder or whether this is lust, okay? Because lust is enjoyable. Uh, you know, the Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a time, and I know that 
you know, if someone has engaged in adultery, they do often feel quite guilty and remorseful afterwards. But generally speaking, at the time, they're enjoying it at some level. Whereas OCD is, is marked by an awareness that these thoughts are not my own. I, I'm a good person. I shouldn't be having thoughts like this. And this, this woman who was waving the knife around, probably, she was the, probably actually a very safe person to be around because she was trying so hard not to do it. Um, obsessive compulsive disorder is about the only psychiatric illness that has a decreased rate of suicide compared to the average population because people are so careful that they never actually do anything because they say these thoughts are just not me. And also these thoughts are, are resisted. Um, whereas in you know me, when I arrange my post-it notes on this thing, I don't particularly resist that thought. I just do it. And also when we're engaging in, in, in sinful behavior, again, we're not usually resisting it. We, we may for a while, but we usually sort of give in and go with it. And then we might feel guilty later, but we're kind of sort of in with it. So I think the advice I'd give is if you're saying, this is so unlike me and I really want to resist this, it's probably an intrusive an obsessive thought rather than actually a real sin. And the reality of these intrusive and obsessive thoughts, they are common to all people, aren't they, in terms of consciousness, but not everyone is aware that they're having them. Is that correct? Definitely. We all have intrusive thoughts. I'm, a good example I sometimes use is um, imagine you're on a tube platform, okay, and the, the tube's coming in. Almost everyone's had the thought, I wonder what would happen if I jumped in front of the tube. Now, most people don't act on that thought. But most people have sort of stood on the tube platform and thought, I'm going to fall. I'm, I'm, I'm going to fall. Sure. And you're not. You're standing your two feet back. You're well behind the yellow line. But everyone has that interesting thought, I'm going to fall. And if they then, if everyone acted on that with a compulsion and sort of, you know, touched the four points of the compass or, um, you know, counted to ten or whatever it is, then... That, you know, that would be just the beginnings. Be very odd. We all have the these intrusive thoughts. Yep. You know, um, I, I think, and they are quite normal. But what most people are able to do is they're able to sort of let them pass, sure. and they might have a little spike of anxiety, but they let them pass, and nothing particular happens. Whereas in OCD, people seem to really latch hold of them, and it's often because there was a near miss in the past. Okay. So, for example, the person who checks that the door is shut may have been burgled. Or right. the person who's checking gas taps, they may have left the gas on one night and the house nearly did burn down when they were six and they were really scolded by their parents for that. So there's sometimes been a near miss in the past and that's why they're particularly cautious and they're scanning for any way they could possibly make a mistake. So, so the thoughts are much more pertinent when they do come and they don't seem to be able to just put them down in the same way as other people can. It's very interesting, again, I think that strongly relates to some of the root of some of the Christian obsessional thinking, mm. um, especially with younger Christians who've can be brought up in very uh, strong Christian families, uh, the sense of uh, desire not to offend God, yep. uh, particularly what I'd call scrupulosity, yep. a sort of um, an internal soul-searching for any sin that, mm. might, not, uh, that mm. might not have been confessed. Now, um, interesting thing about this from a theological perspective is that we believe that Jesus died once and for all, for all sin. Mm. When we confess our sins to him, that he, he, he says he knows them no more, that they're separated from us as far as the east is from the west. Um, 
but uh, I, I, like the, I like the picture of the tomb of the unknown soldier, um, that the bones of our old sins can be laid to rest in different tombs with a name, and we can confess them to the Lord, and then they're laid to rest. But um, with people struggling with obsessional thinking, particularly um, from, from Christian perspective with regard to the confession of their sins, mm. I like to use the image of the tomb of the unknown soldier, whereby they pray a coverall prayer, Lord, forgive me for all the sins, for all the things that I don't know that I've done, for all the things that I've mm. forgotten, uh, for all the things uh, that, uh, that will happen today that I forget. Uh, a coverall sense, uh, thereby they don't need to, if you like, keep coming back yeah. to actually yeah. individually confessing everything or searching for something else. Is that helpful technique? I, I think it is, and I think that we have to have a theological answer to some of the Christian obsessions because there is no physical proof. So, for example, some people's OCD will take the form of washing their hands because they're worried that they're going to give their newborn baby some kind of illness, some kind of virus or bug. And, you know, it, it takes quite a while to work up to this, but ultimately what would happen in therapy is that eventually they would be not washing their hands as much and what would happen, of course, is that their child would actually be perfectly fine and it may or may not get the odd bug like all toddlers get. But essentially, they would stop washing their hands and after a few months, they'd be able to say, do you know what, there wasn't a link between my hand washing and my child's health. Or, or somebody may have another worry. They may have a worry of, about blood or um, anything red red ink, anything like that, because they think it might give them HIV. And at the end of the day, you know, let's supposing you ask them to touch some red ink as, as part of the therapy. You know, if they really want proof, I mean, obviously we wouldn't advise this, but if they, if they really want proof, then after, after three or four months, they can go and get an HIV test, and it can be proved to them that they haven't got HIV from touching that red ink. Now, we don't actually advice you were to go and get the test we tend to sort of talk about you know what would you get from the test if you were to have one but my point is is that these are things that are ultimately testable whereas lots of christians who have obsessional thoughts are are wondering whether or not they're going to go to heaven or hell because of this they they think because i blasphemed i'm going to go to hell therefore i now need to pray for eight hours every day uh, i need to be praying so much i need to be reading my bible excessively because that means that I'm, I'm there's a, even if there's the slightest possible chance that I'm going to go to hell it's well worth doing that compulsive behavior to put it to one side and sometimes we can go in as pastors and we can say is it worth it and they will say well remember the martyrs remember the martyrs in the church the martyrs died for their Christian faith people have gone to be missionaries in Africa and India they've made that kind of sacrifice surely the sacrifice to um, read my bible for four hours or eight hours a day or pray constantly is worth it isn't it and the only answer that we can give because we can't put that to the test we can't say to them well let's see what happens when you die let's see whether you do go to heaven or hell because of course we believe they're going to go to heaven because they're christians and they're Absolutely. trusting in jesus but there, there isn't a test there isn't a check that we sure. can do so ultimately we have to have some kind of, of answer and i think there are some other techniques that we can use and perhaps we can talk about that in another program but sure. I, I would certainly encourage people to explain to a person particularly if it's someone in your church and you set, share the same faith tradition as them to look at what the bible says about sin to see that jesus's death has once and for all paid with this you don't need to confess every sin as it comes along it is a coverall it is buried with the unknown soldier. Sure, that's really helpful, Rob. Uh, just a couple of things that I'd add to that. You know, the, um, just for any listeners who might have um, 
may be struggling with obsessional thoughts, especially as a Christian, being concerned that they've committed the unforgivable sin. Mm. Um, in Matthew's gospel, the mention of the unforgivable sin, and uh, I just want to just want to highlight that uh, uh, as one area where where many Christians are very obsessed about uh, a time in which they might have grieved the Holy Spirit. Just to let you know that if you are worried about that, uh, that you haven't committed it, it's one of those uh, impossibilities. If you're worrying about having grieved the Holy Spirit, you can't have grieved the Holy yep. Spirit. Yep. And so that's really nothing uh, to be uh, obsessing about. If you want to find out more about Mind and Soul, please visit our website www.mindandsoul.info. Register for monthly emails, find the local group, and learn from hundreds of online resources. Thank you for listening.